What a joy it is to gather as sons and daughters of God. Because of Christ's perfect mediation, we, the blood-bought bride of Christ, can boldly come into God's presence. Let us now turn our attention to Matthew 6, verse 5 to 8, as we listen to the words of our King. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege we have to be called sons and daughters. We thank you for the salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased for us. Lord, we ask that you will help us to see the glory of Christ and truly believe in your word. Lord, we ask that your word would go forth in power, that you will change us and make us into a praying people. Lord, we ask you'd help us in our weakness and grant us the ability to submit to your gracious word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I can think of few things more frightening to a young man who is interested in a Christian woman than to meet her parents. As much as you want to impress the girl, if you are this young man, you even more want to impress her Christian father. You see, finding acceptance with him is the key to receive his most prized possession, that is, his daughter. So imagine this scenario. As a good Christian man, this father wants to get to know you and calls you to dinner. And while you all sit down to eat, unexpectedly, he asks you to pray for the food. What do you do? You spend the next five minutes trying to conjure up a prayer that would rain down heaven. You Search your database for all the theological terms you can remember. You say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious, infallible, irresistible grace. Thank you that you are immutable, that you, are always, you always act according to your divine holiness. You are steadfast and faithful. Thank you for providing Jesus Christ as the propitiation of our sins so we might enjoy this most blessed meal. And all God's people said, 
Amen. And you slowly raise your eyes to see the look on his face. Is he well pleased? Or does he see through your insecure veneer? Now, friends, I hope you're mature enough to realize that theologically robust prayers are pleasing to God. That's not the point. However, just like this young man, how often do you pray or not pray out of your fear of what others will think? This, beloved, is precisely what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6, verse 5 to 8. After teaching his disciples the necessity of righteousness, he warns them to not practice their righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Beloved, this is a danger that we face as Christians. All of us in this room are tempted to use God's good gifts, like prayer, to honor ourselves. So then what do we do? How can we guard our hearts and honor God in prayer? Well, this afternoon, we are going to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and learn the privilege of prayer. He teaches us how to flee hypocrisy and how to offer genuine prayer to God. In Matthew 6, verse 5 to 8, Jesus gives us a warning, a blessing, and an assurance. A warning, a blessing, and an assurance. So let's look at that first point. A warning. Jesus warns us to flee hypocrisy. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus begins his warning by bringing up the occasion of prayer. Did you notice that? He says, when you pray. He did not say if. Prayer is not something we tag on to our Christian lives. It's not something we do when it's convenient or we feel like it. Beloved, we are called to be devoted to prayer, to pray without ceasing, to go to spiritual war, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6, verse 18. Simply put, you may not be a Christian if you never pray. Prayer is a mark of genuine faith when you pray. But if prayer is necessary to the Christian life, what does it mean to pray? Christians throughout the ages have come up with all sorts of definitions for prayer. In his book, Prayer, John Anwuchekwa gives four wrong views commonly held by Christians. Note, these are wrong views commonly held by Christians to define prayer. Number one, prayer is just like talking to God, like you talk to a friend. Number two, prayer is demanding something from God. Number three, prayer is aligning our will with God's. Or number four, prayer is wishful thinking aimed in God's direction. Well, if this is wrong, wrong definitions of prayer, then what is prayer? Well, the word pray literally means to petition or call upon a deity. So simply put, it is to call on God. But you see, this word to pray would have had a rich meaning to the disciples. You see, the disciples are Jews, and they would have understood that prayer was always tethered to the temple in Jerusalem. Every prayer at home 
or at the synagogue was mediated through the sacrifice of priests. You see, after the fall, our sin cut us off from God's presence. We deserve to die. But God, in His mercy, made a covenant of blood with Israel at Mount Sinai. By faith in God's covenant and atoning sacrifice, God's people could now enter into His presence at the tabernacle and later at the temple. We see this from Solomon's prayer of dedication that Pastor Alex read earlier. See, as King Solomon dedicates the temple, he asks God to remember His covenant and to hear the prayers of His people at the temple. And God answers Solomon in 1 Kings 9, verse 3. He says, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, that's the temple, that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So God's people could enter into God's dwelling place where his name dwelled. They could call upon the name of the Lord through the blood of the covenant. God's people could enter into God's dwelling place through the blood of the covenant. So a a definition for us. Prayer is an act of faith by which we call on God's name and enter into his presence through sacrifice. But some people in Jesus' day were using prayer to promote themselves before others. Look again at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Jesus here warns his disciples with an absolute prohibition. You must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrisy is unbefitting of a Christian. Jesus warns us because he knows our hearts. He knows that each one of us will be tempted to do just that. This word hypocrite was used to describe a play actor who would dress up as a different character and put on a show for others. These are men like the Pharisees and the scribes who would outwardly put on a show of righteousness, but underneath their costume... They were someone else entirely. Now, what makes the hypocrite's prayer so antithetical to genuine prayer? Well, Jesus gives two reasons. They love to pray in public, and they love the praise of man. They love to pray in public. They love the praise of man. Look again at verse 5. For they, the hypocrites, love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners. Now, I want you to pay attention to the details that Jesus includes here. Jesus first describes their physical posture in prayer. They stand and pray. Now, to us, standing and praying might be a red flag. But in Jesus' day, actually standing was a normal posture of prayer. Second, Jesus describes the location of their prayers. They pray in the synagogue and at the street corners. Again, prayer was common in public, especially in the synagogue. So I want you to get this. Jesus here is describing a scene that is quite ordinary in public worship. It's quite ordinary in public worship. 
I want you to also notice what Jesus does not mention in this text. He does not mention what they prayed or the content of their prayers. In fact, Jesus probably has the Pharisees in mind. These were men who were experts in doctrine. Beloved, they would have looked on the outside and sounded orthodox to the disciples. They would have looked and sounded in their prayers orthodox. And this, my friends, is the danger of hypocrisy. The hypocrite looks good, sounds godly, but deep down is rotten to the core. Later in Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus calls these same men white-washed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You see, the issue of the hypocrite is not his outward appearance. You can say the right things, you can do the right things, but the issue is within. The issue with the hypocrite is his heart. This hypocrite loved to pray in public and public alone. This is like a man who never prays with his wife at home, but as soon as someone comes to visit for dinner, he's eager to have a family devotion. He loves to pray only in public. He never prays in secret. Second, we see that this hypocrite loves to be seen by others. The reason the hypocrite only prays in public is because what prayer, public prayer, can do for him. Do you see the word that in verse 5? So that they may be seen by others. The hypocrite seeks out the crowds to practice their righteousness before other people. They pick the perfect spot on the street corner and wait for the busiest time of the day to lift up their high and lofty prayer. These men only love what prayer can do for them. They only love what prayer can do for them. They use righteous acts in order to gain what they love the most, the praise of man, the praise of others. You see, these men do not love God, but they use God's name to build up their fame. They use God's name in prayer. They cry out, Yahweh, you are fed, steadfast and faithful. And they use it to build up their own name. This, my friends, is the definition of idolatry. The hypocrite exchanges the glory of God for the glory of themselves. Friends, every single time, listen to me, every single time that you pray in order to be seen by others, you are serving at the altar of me, my will, and my glory. It might look righteous to others, but is no different than carving an image of yourself and prostrating down before it. Before you say, I would never do that, I want you to ask you to stop and examine your heart. You see, Jesus is giving us this warning because all of us are tempted to pray like hypocrites. So I want to give you three simple questions to help you examine your motives when you pray. Number one, who do you fear? Are you controlled by what others think or what God thinks? Number two, who are you aiming to please? Are you seeking affirmation of man or God? Number three, whose glory are you seeking? Your own glory or God's glory? 
and if you are seeking the glory of man, then Jesus says, you will receive it. Look again at verse 5. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Hypocrites who seek the praise of man get what they are after. They get the reward of the praise of man. This word reward carries a sense of complete payment. You wanted the praise of man? It's all you get. Nothing else. Now, maybe that sounds good to you. Maybe you're like, yeah, I would like that. But friends, you need to know that this is utter vanity. It is here today and gone tomorrow. As the prophet Isaiah proclaims, all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Friends, just as the grass withers in the summer heat of the UAE, so does the praise of your peers. And I mean, we know this, right? Just think back to the last time you received a compliment. Can you remember what it was? How long did the good feeling last? Or think about the last time you received critical, critical feedback at work. You can be told 10 well-dones, but it's always that one criticism that gnaws at you. Brothers and sisters, the glory of man might last one week, one year, or maybe a hundred years. But for the one who finds their delight in man will receive an eternity of shame, misery, and sorrow in hell. You might fool your parents. You might fool your fellow members. You might even fool your pastors. But you cannot fool God. A heart that makes a practice of praying for the glory of man will not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, Jesus is speaking to you. You see, the point of warnings is to awaken your senses and call you back to God. If you see the hypocrisy of your sin or you're feeling weighed down by guilt, then heed the warning of Christ. Confess your sin to God and run to the refuge of your Savior. He is eager and ready to forgive you. No matter what you have done, you can come to God in prayer and receive his reward. So first, Jesus gives us a warning. Second, we see that Jesus gives us a blessing. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus here contrasts the prayer of hypocrites with genuine prayer. Do you see that in the text? Do you see the word but? But when you pray. The hypocrite prays for the praise of man, but you, my disciple, do not pray like them. Here he's reinforcing the urgency of his warning he just said. In contrast to the hypocrite, Jesus here in verse 6 gives three marks of genuine prayer. Three marks of genuine prayer. First, the disciple prays in secret. Unlike the hypocrite who prays on the street corners, Jesus commands his disciples to pray in secret. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Jesus here gives two main imperatives or commands. Go and pray. Go and pray. Go to your room and pray, my friends. 
The word room here can mean an inner room or chamber. He even tells you to shut the door so that no one can hear your prayers. So, should you find a place in your home where you can pray to God in secret? Yes. This is the clear command of Christ. Whether it be in the office or a closet, the main point is that you get alone with God in prayer. Now, Jesus is not forbidding public prayer here, but he's emphasizing that Christians love to pray in secret. This is a heart that loves to carry everything to God in prayer. Think about King David, a man after God's own heart. King David says this in Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing, he only wants one thing, have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or pray in his temple. Or think about the Lord Jesus Christ, who was always leaving the crowds to go and pray. Unlike these hypocrites who were running to the crowds to receive the praise of man, Jesus was fleeing the crowds so he could get alone with God in prayer. Mark 135 records, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So friends, if you have to go to a desolate place, if you have to go to the desert, if you have to find a place in your closet, do whatever it takes to get alone with God. And you know why Christians love to pray? It's because of who they approach in prayer. That's the point, who they approach in prayer. So first we see that the disciple prays, to, prays in secret, but the disciple also prays to his Father. Unlike the hypocrite who prays to be seen by man, Jesus commands his disciples to pray to an audience of one. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. This, my friends, is the heart of prayer. Genuine prayer is centered on God himself. You get alone with God and call upon your Father who is in secret. Now, this phrase, in secret, does not mean that God is mysteriously hidden from us, like a spiritual game of hide-and-seek. Rather, Jesus, again, is highlighting the contrast between the hypocrites and true disciples who seek their Father in secret. Friends, when you shut the door and pray in secret, God alone can hear your prayers. This is because our God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And when we come to God in prayer, when we shut the door and we come to God in prayer, the King of heaven listens to us. The King of heaven listens to you. I want you to stop and think how amazing this is. Think about all the sinful attitudes and distorted thinking that you inherited from your earthly father. You were lost, hopeless, blind to your hypocrisy, enslaved in sin, and a willing rebel to the king. And yet here, what does Jesus command you? You, a sinner, to pray to your Father, 
What prisoner ever gets an audience with the king? The reason that you can approach God in prayer is because he has made rebels into sons. This is the good news of the gospel. As 1 John 3, 1, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 5, In love, God predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. My friends, if you have put your faith in the finished work of Christ, then God has adopted you as his son or his daughter. You have all the rights, privileges, and blessings of Christ himself. Just as God listens to his son, he now listens to you. We approach God like we appro- we do not approach God like our boss when we ask for an extension but rather God himself beckons us to come as his beloved children. Now listen to me. No matter how good or bad your earthly father was, whatever distortions you may think you have, God is not like them. No one is like our God. He is the perfect, holy father. In Christ, his smile His favor and his love is always towards you. There's not a second that this father's love is on you. He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who runs to his son. And just like the son is met with the warm love of the father, so too do we come to God in prayer. You can approach the eternal throne of God and call on him, Abba, Father, When you pray, you come and you enter into God's presence and you actually enjoy fellowship with God. But that's not all. Look again at verse 6. Jesus says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Unlike the hypocrite who seeks man's praise, Jesus tells his disciples to pray for the eternal reward of God. Now, I want you to notice two things about this reward. First, this reward comes from our omniscient and omnipresent God. It comes from God himself. He is the one who gives us these rewards. Now, this is the God who sees everything. And this should encourage you, my friends. Think about how many times you've done something at work or at home that goes unnoticed. Maybe you stayed up late to work on that project. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom whose entire job description is to tirelessly clean, wipe, wash, teach, vacuum. And what reward do you get? A grumpy husband? Disobedient children? You think no one notices? God does. God sees. He sees every act of obedience done in faith. And my friends, this is the same with prayer. You see, most of our prayers are not seen or known by others. But God sees every prayer we make in secrets. Every time you come in faith, God says he himself will reward you. And what will God reward? What what is the thing that he's rewarding us here? Is it he's rewarding us if our prayers are answered? Is he rewarding us because of the eloquence of your words? Is he rewarding you because of the fervency of your petition? No. 
God will reward you every time you pray. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you every time you come to Him in prayer. Every time you come by faith, God will reward you. Second, notice that this reward is coming. It's future. You see that in the text? It says God will reward you. That's a future tense. These are eschatological. We will receive them when Christ returns. For instance, listen to Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Brothers and sisters, your good deeds do not earn your salvation. Amen? Your good deeds do not earn your salvation. But every deed you do in faith, including prayer, Jesus Christ will reward you on that final day. Now, we do not know exactly what these look like, but I can tell you this. They will be infinitely better than a new iPhone or a trip to Baskin-Robbins. And as we wait for future reward, God has given us a down payment in the gift of His Spirit. We can enjoy the blessing of God's presence now in the present as we await future glory to come. And on that day when our faith becomes sight, we will behold His glory face to face. You see, just like we enjoy God now when we come in prayer, we come into His presence and enjoy communion with Him, on that day, we will see Him face to face. We have the reward of God Himself. Friends, we will enjoy our God with no hinders of sin or this frail body. We will see our Father in all His glory and will enjoy untainted, unstained, glorious communion with God forever. Can you imagine what that day will be like when we enjoy the glory of God with no more sin, no more hindrance, no more sleepy bodies, sleepy nights? Revelation 22, 1, verse 5, gives us a vision of that day. John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, will be there, no longer will there be anything accursed, nothing accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Oh, friends, this is what awaits you when you come to God in prayer. Beloved, it is only by faith that we can joyfully pray to our Father. It means you have to believe that this is true. You need to believe that God himself will reward you with his presence now and glory to come. If you're struggling to find motivation, then what you need to do is set your eyes to heaven. You need to look into the glorious face of Jesus Christ. You need to pray in light of that final reward. 
God is so gracious to give blessing upon blessing for our weak faith and stumbling prayers. He's not asking for perfection. He's telling us to come, to come to him, our Father, and receive his rewards. Brothers and sisters, let future glory spur you on to greater faithfulness in the good work of prayer. Finally, Jesus gives an assurance in verse 7 to 8. Jesus once again warns his disciple as he reassures their faith. Look again at verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap empty words, do not heap up empty words as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse 7 has a very striking parallel to verse 5, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is further commenting on what he has already taught in verse 5 to 6. He's expanding on his teaching. So he again warns his disciples about when they pray. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. This again is a negative prohibition. Do not pray like the Gentiles. And how do these Gentiles pray? They heap up empty phrases, which literally means to chatter or to utter empty words. According to one scholar, Jesus here is referring to the pagan practice of mumbling jitterish that is believed to have magical powers. Now, you might be thinking, how are Christians tempted to pray like pagans? I don't think anyone here is tempted to pray with magical powers. Or are they? Let's keep reading to understand what Jesus really means here. What is the heart motivation of these pagan practices? What are they trying to accomplish? Jesus says, they think that they will be heard for their many words. They pray this way, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. They heap up holy mumblings, and they think it'll appease or manipulate the gods to get what they want. For instance, take the showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah from 1 Kings 18. The prophets of Baal offered up their self-righteous chatter to appease Baal. They limped around the altar, cutting themselves, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. These pagan practices would offer chatter upon chatter upon chatter, hoping that it might rise to heaven. These pagan practices continue today in different forms. I'll never forget one time when I witnessed a Hindu worship service in North India. This open-air room was packed, and they began to beat the drums. Boom, boom, boom. And they began to chant frantically, louder and louder and louder, as if they were trying to raise their voices to heaven. They were trying to be heard by God. They thought that the gods would hear them because of their offerings of prayers and their many words. Or think about where we live. Every day, five times a day, you hear a call to prayer ring out across this land. Among other things, Muslims regard these prayers as one of the necessary pillars to obtain rewards in heaven. As one Muslim scholar explains, the prayer is a sure method of attaining righteousness and nearness to our Creator. This prayer is a precise ritual of ablution, standing, bowing, and reciting. And they do this five times a day in order to be heard by God 
and to receive eternal life. But before you and I are too quick to judge, I wonder how often we do the very same thing. How often are you tempted to offer up your words, your prayers, your righteous deeds to be heard or accepted by God? We might think that if we obey his commands, then surely God will give us what we want. So we offer up our prayers to twist God's arm to give us what we desire. Or maybe others of us treat God like he's some pagan deity who needs to be appeased every once in a while. For, in, for example, maybe you think that if you do not pray for protection every night, then something bad will happen to you. Or we fall into this mindless rituals of prayer. Think about the prayers you pray before your meal. How many of us say, thank you God for this food, amen. We mindlessly pray without even thinking about what we just prayed. Beloved, every time we, we offer up empty phrases, mindlessly, or seek to manipulate God, we are praying like pagans. And Jesus says, do not be like them. Look at verse 8. He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Beloved, you do not need to twist God's arm or perform any superstitious ritual or offer any acts of righteousness to get God to listen to you. My friends, you should flee from self-centered, self-righteous, self-indulging prayers that are no better than pagan superstition. Do not pray like pagans, but trust in your good and gracious God. You see, the reason we do not pray like pagans is because we do not pray to dead idols. We pray to the living God, the creator of all things. Do you not know who you pray to? Do you not understand who it is you come to? As the prophet Isaiah proclaims, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He knows everything because he's God over everything. He doesn't need you to tell him what you want. He knows it already. He knows what you will pray even before it comes to your mind. So I want to give you three things to remember as you come to your Father in prayer. Remember God's sovereign rule. Remember that when you pray, you're coming to the everlasting God, the King of kings. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven, and He knows exactly what you need exactly what you need before you ask. He is all-knowing and he is all-wise. In fact, our God knows better what you need than you know. Not only that, not only does God know what you need, but in fact God has ordained what you need. He has ordained all things for your good. 
Therefore, you can pray confidently as you trust in his sovereign rule over your life. Second, pray knowing that God hears your prayers. You do not need to heap up empty phrases to be heard by him. Actually, there's nothing you can do to earn an audience with the king. Instead, you need to trust God's word. You need to remember that God is your father, and he loves to hear the prayers of his children. His ears are wide open to you. So call on him, knowing that he hears your prayers. Third and finally, pray trusting God's gracious provision. Beloved, God knows what you need what you need before you ask. He knows what you need and he will provide it. He knows the state of your finances. He knows the struggles of your heart. He knows your fight or failures in sin. He knows the turmoil of your marriage. He sees it all. There's nothing that you can say or do that God does not already know. He sees the depths of your soul. He knows everything you need, and he himself will provide it. Friends, the only way any of us in this room can come to God in prayer is if we trust in his gracious provision. You see, if we were left to ourselves, then we would be without hope. You see, deep down, all of us are hypocrites to the core. You know your hearts. All of us seek our own interests. All of us live for our own glory. All of us have exchanged the glory of God. And all of us deserve the full punishment of his wrath. We all have used the good gifts of God in prayer to worship at the idol of ourself. Left to ourselves, we are eternally cut off from God's presence we have no hope to be accepted by God. There's nothing, nothing you can do in your own strength or abilities or anything you say that can earn favor with him. But God knows what you need, even before you ask. God knows what you need before you even ask. In fact, before the foundation of the world, he predestined you. He chose you. He made a plan to adopt you as children through what he would provide. In your sin, you are cut off from God, separated from Christ. You're alienated from Israel. You're strangers to the covenant of promises. You have no hope without God in the world. But God, even but God in his great love, Even while you were a sinner, God himself provided a substitute. God provided what you need. God provided a sacrifice to pay for your sins and to give you a sonship. He gives you what you need in his one and only son. My friends, that is what you need the most. You need Jesus Christ. He's the only man who never lived in hypocrisy. He lived a righteous, blameless, holy life. And he offered his sinless life as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And guess what? 
He was heard because of his reverence, because of his obedience, because of his holiness. God accepted his sacrifice. God heard his prayers and was pleased with his atoning death on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross, but three days later, he conquered the penalty of our rebellion to make a way for us to come to God. Jesus Christ has paid it all. All of it, my friends. He's paid it all so you can be forgiven of your sins and so you can be adopted as a son and a daughter. It is through the blood of Christ, through the finished work of Christ, that we can come to God in prayer. It's through the finished work of Christ that we can come in faith. As Hebrews 10, 19 explains, in Christ, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us now, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, he who promised is faithful. He has provided the sacrifice needed to atone for our sins so that we can come to God in prayer. Beloved, this is the privilege of prayer. Oh, will you not come to him? If you're caught in sin, come to him. If you're heavy and laden down, come to him. Lay all your burdens on the back of Christ. His shoulders are strong enough to carry it. Come to your Father in prayer, and he will reward you with his presence, with forgiveness, and eternal life. Come to your Father knowing that he knows what you need, even before you ask. And my friends, if you are in this room and you have never trusted in Christ, could today be the day could God have brought you here to hear about this amazing grace? My friends, if you are a rebel, guess what? God is beckoning you. He's calling you to come to him. Lay down your arms. Turn from your hypocrisy. Confess your sin and trust in the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come to God. Come and believe in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope we have to come in prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember our identity as sons and daughters. Help us not to shrink back, but to be bold and courageous. To remember that it is not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to be faithful to pursue righteousness, and to be those who seek your face every day. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.